Dr. Anas Alhaji is an energy expert, researcher, author, and speaker. He advises governments, financial institutions, and investors on the various energy market issues. In this episode, we cover Anas' early discovery of oil and why he pursued a career in the US, the one-on-one basics of oil markets and global energy consumption, how the world's oil demand will play out in the future, and why energy and oil could give the biggest return for investors right now. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Where do you like to start with people who are sort of interesting, interested to learn about oil and gas? What are the fundamental blocks you start with when you want to teach someone about the market dynamics and how this gigantic industry work? Well, generally speaking, uh, uh, common sense prevail all the time. So you need common sense. And uh, aside from common sense, you need uh, Economics 101. Economics 101 really is not even a science. It's just common sense. People have been practicing it for thousands of years. So you need that common sense. And common sense basically forces you to think differently from what a lot of people think. Uh, So one of the... Uh, first issues people should realize, especially for in places like Scandinavia in general, is that oil and renewable energy in Europe are not substitutes. People think, oh, if I build more more uh, renewable energy and more solar and more wind and more hydro, then I don't need the Saudis, I don't need the Arabs, I don't need oil, I don't need OPEC. Well, they are not substitutes in the first place. So this is one of the misconceptions about the relationship between them. And the reason why, because renewable energy is used to generate electricity. Oil in Europe is rarely used to generate electricity. And therefore, even if you double or triple uh, the capacity of renewable energy in Europe, it has no impact on the oil demand, period. Uh, So this is one of the misconceptions and, and people... They don't need to study it. It's just common, common sense. Just look at the numbers and you realize that. You don't need someone wearing a tie to tell you that. So, uh, so that one. Uh, the other issue that uh, people do not understand the fact that when it comes to the environment, you, you, to protect the environment, you need to balance environmental security with energy security, with economic security. If you don't have that balance, you will have none, period. So to go extreme on climate change policies, you lose on all of them. And we've already seen uh, some countries in Europe going back to coal, which is a disaster for the environment. We already have seen some countries basically emphasizing fossil fuel, although they don't want to, simply because they couldn't do that balance. They couldn't manage the balance between those three. If you want to go for one uh, of them, especially if you want to focus on the environment alone without energy security, 
probably you are better off just going to a cave or going to a forest and live there. That's very interesting. And I mean, when you, when you say it like that, hasn't sort of the, let's say the last few years also basically just told us this fact. If you look at what, what's happening, when you get conflict, people afraid about energy security, etc., then you also see what sort of the top priorities. And maybe it all goes also back to politics. Like when everything is good, it's very easy to talk about renewables and investing in renewables. But when something bad happens and you need to sort of do something drastically, it's very easy to see the prioritization of the politics, right? I mean, that, what, what you just said proved the point that it's all about common sense, right? So that's how we start things. It's, it's all about common sense and you're absolutely correct. Interesting. So, but given, given that you've been working in the oil markets for such a long time and you say it's all about common sense and one-on-ones, what's the hardest part on your end to sort of either predict or to fully understand? Because at least from my perspective, it also seems like there's so many assumptions when we're talking about demand and supply going forward. But then suddenly, like, it seems like when people are predicting the oil prices, it's as hard as predicting currency rates, right? seems like a very hard puzzle to solve or to master fully. Absolutely. So what we do in this case is we isolate politics and natural events completely from the modeling. So we do our modeling with the known facts and the known trends. And then whatever that is not predictable, such as politics or nature, that comes extra. And that would be plus or minus. So uh, that's where basically uh, how everyone uh, does it. The problem is when uh, people fall in love with a certain trend, that's where the problem is. You have to be completely independent to be able to do a good job on those forecasts, despite all the difficulties, despite the number of variables, uh, despite politics and nature, you still need to be independent. The problem we have historically is uh, people go to extremes. And when they go to extremes, that's when things go wrong. Interesting. If you look at your own sort of research, what do you find most fascinating to work on sort of in 2022 and going forward? Is there anything specific or is it just a whole spectrum that you find fascinating? I am always fascinated uh, by uh, the, uh, how people react on the ground to various market conditions, to various regulations, to various policies. So this is really fascinating in every sense you think about. And the reason why government policies fail, because they don't realize how people are going to react on the ground, how people are going to behave as a result of those uh, policies. To give you some examples, uh, in a country like India, for example, uh, they, they really care about the environment, they really care about climate change. And one policy basically is to eliminate subsidies on fossil fuel and impose taxes, and then you move to renewables. That's common sense, right? That's what policymakers believe in. The problem is, and that's what fascinated me all the time, was, okay, lift subsidies, increase taxes. Now, how people are going to behave? Well, the poor people are going to go to the old coal mines and take whatever they can get out of them. They're going to go to the forest and cut trees. And all of a sudden, you have the opposite results of what you intend from the policy you impose. So you have all those unintended consequences 
if you don't understand them because they are all common sense. I mean, if you are poor and you cannot afford to pay, what you are going to do? You need to survive. So we have those unintended consequences as a result. A government, for example, imposed very harsh uh, punishment on uh, uh, um, uh, smuggling, for example. Uh, well, just because you impose harsh sanctions, that means the smuggled good now has a very high price. And because it has very high price, it becomes tempting for smugglers to smuggle despite the harsh uh, punishment uh, in this case. That's an intended consequence uh, to, uh, to this. There is uh, an old story, which is kind of fascinating story just to tell the whole, the whole thing of that in one of the previous uh, communist uh, countries in Eastern uh, Europe, uh, when they tried to open up, a German company came in and said, look, uh, it takes farmers about two hours to get to the market uh, because there is this mountain between where the valley is and the city, the, the, the capital city. Uh, and two hours is too late for a produce basically to come every single morning from the farm to the market. So why we don't do this? We are going to build a tunnel uh, through that mountain and uh, farmers will go through the tunnel they will pay a toll. It will take only 20 minutes. So they can cut the two hours to 20 minutes. And that's a lot of savings. And the government agreed on the condition they are not going to pay a penny. And the um, German company said that that's fine. We'll do the investment. We collect the toll. And 30 years later, we move out and you own the tunnel. So they agreed to it. They opened the tunnel and very few people passed through the tunnel. And the Germans went crazy. So what's going on? So they conducted a market study to find out why the farmers are not using the tunnel. Well, they found out that farmers, because these are small farms, they, they like six, seven of them basically will put their produce on one truck and go to the city, sell everything, come back. They, they missed the idea that the opportunity cost for the time of the farmer at that time of the year is zero. So what time they are trying to save for the farmer? All he got to do is sell his produce and he has nothing to do for the rest of the day. So you are preventing him from having fun with his friends for two hours and two hours, four hours of fun. He is losing. And therefore the project failed because they thought the value of time for the farmers is the same value of time for German workers and the same way capitalistic societies in Western Europe uh, think about time. So understanding these reactions uh, on the ground is extremely important, whether in energy or any other field. If you like this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.